G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. According to our guest on today's episode, a transformation in the professions is underway. Lawyers, academics, journalists, the medical professions, even the clergy are going to see significant changes to their fields. Professions, my next guest argues, are a relic from our old print-based society. Today's internet world is driving an evolution of professional services. So what does the future look like for our doctors and lawyers and academics and journalists? And what do these changes mean for our society and our economy? To take us into the future, we're joined by Professor Richard Suskind, advisor to professional firms and national governments. Richard is also the IT advisor to the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, and with his son Daniel, the co-author of The Future of the Professions, a book which has been widely praised, but equally widely feared. Richard, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure to be with you. We hear a lot about robots taking on semi-skilled jobs, but you run a very different scenario in which the professions are no longer safe from the march of the machine. Are the professional classes too confident that they're going to be immune from change? I think there's been a certain amount of complacency, certainly before our book came out. (laughs) Uh, In many ways, our book was a little bit of a wake-up call. The blue-collar worker, I think, had clearly known for many years that much or at least some of their activities could be uh, undertaken by machines. But as you say, the assumption was always when it comes to white-collar works and workers and particularly professionals, it was hard to imagine that the, the work they do on a daily basis could be undertaken by any kind of system. And and we want to challenge that because it seems to us if you combine the emerging techniques that are used under the heading of artificial intelligence and you have a look at the progress that's been made in the internet, we are providing entirely new channels for producing and distributing knowledge and expertise in society. Can you describe the forces that in aggregate are assaulting the professions? It's not just IT, is it? No, there are a variety, and we identify, and I won't trouble you with them in detail, eight broad patterns and 30 trends that are in combination are affecting the profession. Some are rather mundane, to be honest, what we call the more for less challenge, that across the professions, people are wanting more professional service at less cost, because it transpires that so many of the professions, whether it be medicine or education uh, or law, are unaffordable to so many people. Another set of pressures are essentially the the emergence of new technologies in the shape of uh, tech startups. In law, for example, just a few years ago, there were 200 legal tech startups. Now there are over 2,000. And each one, when you think about it, is trying to do in law or to a corner of law what Amazon did to book selling. So traditional professionals are very aware that there's a new kind of competitor out there. The boundaries between professions are breaking down as well. So if you look at the major accounting firms, who originally were accountants and tax advisors, but most of them, again, in my home area of law, are moving rapidly in there as well. And I have no doubt in the future, you'll see these big businesses in in healthcare and architecture and other professions too, education as well. So this combination in market terms of relentless pressure and costs, new competitors and players, and the emergence of new technologies is it's a very 
potent and uh, I think a very threatening combination for traditional professional firms and for traditional professions more generally. So you and your son Daniel examine the privileged position that the professions enjoy in society and you describe this as a sort of grand bargain that's facilitated a privileged position. Can you take us through this grand bargain? Yes, I mean, there's many aspects to it, but uh, above all else, I suspect what we have is professionals as a form of gatekeeper. And, and the deal is that we grant exclusivity to certain classes of worker that only they are allowed to undertake particular types of work. And so only a surgeon is permitted to cut us open. Only an auditor is permitted authoritatively to pronounce on the accuracy of accounts. Only a certain type of lawyer, by and large, is permitted to appear in court. And we do this often in the name of protection of the individual consumer, the client, uh, the patient. The idea being that we have this deal which grants exclusivity, and in return for that, we get trusted, reliable, affordable service in important areas of our lives. We can't seem to find any other ways or haven't historically found other ways of sorting the kinds of problems that bring people to professionals. And how long have we had this grand bargain? It's been going for a couple of hundred years, in our view. We did a little bit of a historical survey and uh, trying to find the origins of the professions. Professions as distinct from expert uh, workers. So clearly there's yeah. been people working in medicine and law for many centuries, but coalescing in the form of some kind of profession that's granted this exclusivity that's subject to certain ethical standards and so forth. That's a more recent phenomenon. And it emerges in some way from the, the Middle Ages, actually, uh, and can be, to some extent, traced to the guilds. But it's a relatively recent phenomenon, and I suppose uh, in its current form, dates to the end of the Industrial Revolution. So you're describing a division of labour uh, and that's enforced through regulation and certified by training. We've seen previous groups, you mentioned the guilds, skilled artisans and tradesmen, whose roles have been wiped out, and you're applying the same logic and the same sort of creative destruction processes now to the professions. There are some analogies there. We don't really have mercers anymore. We don't have wheelwrights, cord winners or tallow chandlers, but we still need uh, silk. We still use silk products. We still uh, have leather goods and candles and wheels. And the point here is that the, the outcome the deliverable, as it were, is still very much in demand, but the process by which these outcomes and deliverables have been created has radically changed. And that's why we have a, a number of discussions. When you, when you think about it, for example, people don't really want doctors or surgeons. They want health. People don't really want tax advisors. They want to minimize their exposure and ensure they comply with tax regulation. People don't really want architects. They want beautiful buildings that serve the functions they require. The intermediaries, the gatekeepers, the people with whom we have this grand bargain are those that have in the past allowed the delivery uh, or enabled the delivery of health or a fine building or a reliable tax return. And our feeling is that we're seeing emerging technology that can deliver that outcome in an entirely different way. This is a social change with very profound implications, not least for a university which, whose business, I guess, is to certify those professions and send people into the grand bargain. Well, that's absolutely right. And the universities, I suppose, face two challenges, uh, what they teach on the one hand and, and how they teach uh, on the other. Uh, as regards how they teach, it just one fascinating 
piece of uh, information that uh, in one year we found that uh, Harvard had more people subscribing to their online courses than had attended the physical university since its foundation. In one year, that was the number of uh, people who signed up. Uh, but it's not just uh, the way in which we teach, and I think that will radically change from e-learning through to some kind of simulated learning environments and practice environments and so forth. It's what we're teaching, and it does worry me rather uh, that we're generating, by and large, 20th century graduates rather than 21st century graduates. If our premise is correct, then it won't be many years before the conventional doctor, lawyer, accountant, architect, consultant, and so forth, won't be needed to undertake the work they do today. And so I challenge law schools and medical schools and so forth. I challenge them and ask whether or not they're developing the people who can essentially be developing the systems that will underpin and provide the solutions to clients in the future. So my colleagues and I are going to go the way of Mercer's and Wheelwrights. Excellent. Can we focus on two professional areas that you've paid a lot of attention to? You've just touched on one, education, and the second is the law, for which you've spent 40 years of your life researching and writing about. On education, you state in the book that the role of the teacher as the sage on the stage will be fundamentally changed to the guide on the side. Uh, which is a very neat formulation, but can you describe the impact of technology on education? I think in that context, it was looking at the classroom and what goes on in the classroom. And it seemed to us, for example, on the anniversary of Darwin, the idea that um, biology teachers, more or less competent biology teachers around the world, are giving their versions of Darwin where there might be an online lecture by Richard Dawkins, for example. Wouldn't it be marvellous to bring a world's leading expert and outstanding communicator into the classrooms of all people around the world. And the role of the teacher then would not be to deliver the content, but actually to encourage discussion, reflection, critical assessment. And that's what we mean by moving from being the stage in the stage to the guide in the side. But that very much assumes, of course, you're retaining the classroom model, which I think there are strong reasons for so doing. But one can envisage uh, through online courses and other methods that entirely new ways, particularly when things about lifelong learning and not just periodic learning, but entirely new ways of uh, enlightening people, of offering them an educational experience. And this might be um, real time through telepresence type technologies where people essentially are video linked into live teaching and learning environments, or it might be through courses that are provided and really packaged uh, as online products, which allow people at their, at their leisure to watch and replay uh, lectures and to participate perhaps through some form of virtual reality in what I call simulated practice environments. And so, for instance, in Sir Clyde University in Scotland, uh, at which I'm a, a professor, for many years in our diploma in legal practice, students, that's the course that people do once they've have their law degree, but before they go into a law firm, they have one year of practice training. And uh, for many years, the idea has been that these students are organized as firms, as groups of students divided into teams of four, and they practice law in a fictional online village called Ardkalach, which is very appropriate for Scotland. Yes. And uh, it's um, it's in this learning environment, in this training environment, this practice environment, that, that these students interact with judges and with clients and with the police and the courts and so forth. And it always strikes me when I think of astronauts and I watch an astronaut going up for the first time that this is not, not the first time they've had that experience. We've created simulators of a remarkably sophisticated sort to help these astronauts. Why can't we do the same? Simulate the environments in which our young aspiring professionals will work in the future. And that seems to me to be uh, a solitary, a reasonable uh, uh, goal for, for universities as well as 
the kind of transformed classroom training that I was referring to. And behind the scenes, it transforms the way we organise the academic world and profession. But uh, yeah, indeed. But but Richard, much of your most influential research has been around legal practitioners, and you've worked in this for a long time. Can you take us through how you think technology will transform the legal sector? The, the history of all of this was that uh, in the 80s, I did my doctorate in Oxford University in, in artificial intelligence and law. And then and now I was really interested in one question, and that is, can computers solve legal problems? That seems to me to be quite an interesting question. So in some ways, sad or otherwise, that's what I've dedicated a lot of my life to doing. And there's various aspects of the legal world that are affected. On the one hand, um, one can look at everyday law. And one of our difficulties with everyday law is that most people can't actually realistically afford uh, the advice of lawyers. Still less can they afford to go to courts around the world. It's not true in all jurisdictions. But for most people, for example, uh, a dispute, the conduct of the dispute is a process that's highly expensive, it's highly time-consuming, it's highly combative, it's by and large unintelligible to the layperson, and somehow it just seems to be out of step with the internet society. And so my most recent work, for example, in this area is looking at the whole idea of online courts. I chaired a group for the, well, it's really a combination of the government and the judges in the in England and Wales from 2014 to 2015, and we recommended for low-value disputes that we should have online courts, which basically would involve judges deciding cases, but on the papers alone as submitted to them uh, electronically. So arguments are made and interactions between parties are overseen by judges, but rather than congregating in a physical courtroom, it's done online. And so I have for many years been asking the question, is court a service or a place? Do you really need physically to congregate together to resolve your disputes? And remarkably, both our government and our judiciary is highly supportive of this for at least low-value disputes. And there's interest, I think, in Australia in this as well. Also, the whole idea of online guidance and help. In so many areas of our lives, when we need help or guidance, we turn quite naturally to the internet. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that in law as well. And indeed, so it is. Not just advice, but the production of documents, uh, fairly standard documents. You should be able to answer a series of questions on screen, and out will come a fairly polished first draft. Technology underpinning that has been around since the late 70s. So this idea of online courts or online advice very much for the consumer end of the legal market. At the other end, and in some ways this is more transformational when you think of corporate uh, law firms, major firms advising, for, for example, major companies or financial institutions, we're seeing transformations there. So in large-scale disputes, the review of documents can now at least in part be done by technology. Indeed, its research is showing that in terms of precision and recall, these systems, when trying to find relevant documents in amongst, say, a pile of 10 million, can outperform junior lawyers and paralegals. And more recently, that same technology is being used in major deals uh, where the due diligence exercise is undertaken, where, again, large bodies of documents are being reviewed, systems are outperforming young lawyers and identifying the most relevant documents. Document generation that I mentioned for the layperson, that can equally apply to very sophisticated drafting of documents. And even there's systems emerging now for uh, online legal research conducted by systems rather than directly through human conventional lawyers. So on any view, but I don't want to get the sense this is happening overnight, on any view, we're seeing some remarkable developments and some gradual take-up. I've always taken the view 
that this should result in a in a better and more affordable service, both for citizens and, and major businesses. For lawyers, it's quite challenging, however, because much of the work that used to deliver their income is now being taken on by machine. And that, of course, in microcosm is gives rise to our larger discussion about what the impact of technology is on our labour force more generally. So I'm going to come to that. I'd just like to pick up the inevitable criticism or critique that's offered by some that, yes, machines can do these remarkable jobs, but it's empathy and judgment that are the human contribution to the professional process, and these will be lost in the sorts of processes that you've just described. Yes, well, I think as regards online courts, we've still got judges uh, and yep. still human beings involved with the process. The inefficiency we're trying to overcome is the inefficiency of gathering in a physical courtroom and all that that entails. The other inefficiency arises from very complex rules because the idea is to base the online courts on far simpler rules that non-lawyers can understand and therefore undertake the process themselves. And so I, I don't see any loss there of human interaction. There might be a loss of face-to-face interaction, but um, there's no obvious reason to me that uh, human beings can't at at least express and detect emotions uh, electronically and using the telephone and maybe video uh, conferencing too. The more general observation you're making though is a a crucial one that uh, doctors will again and again say to me that um, what's vital for the the doctor-patient relationship is the empathy that the doctor shows to the patient. And and there's there's a couple of responses there and, and I don't for a second ever want to minimize the the great role that fine doctors, fine empathetic doctors play when they're uh, helping their patients. But we shouldn't overstate that. I mean, it's well known, for example, that uh, in surgery, some surgeons are wonderful technicians, but themselves may not be particularly empathetic. Some doctors aren't particularly empathetic, so we shouldn't be expecting more of our machines than we're getting from our human beings. Uh, There's a more interesting challenge in all of this, though, and that's the emergence of what's known as affective computing. That's machines that can detect and express human emotions. So there's already a system that can look at a human smile and tell whether or not it's fake or genuine. The system that can listen to two female voices and tell whether or not they belong to a mother and a daughter. And we are seeing the emergence of systems that, in due course, across a full range of uh, human experiences, will be superior to human beings in being able to detect the emotional state of the person in front of them. Uh, And then at the next stage, uh, so for example, in the early 20s, your handheld phone will know what kind of uh, mood you're in, but it may respond accordingly. That's the next stage where machines actually provide suitable music or suitable reassuring words or nudges given the mood it knows we're in. And I refer often in this context to the work that's been done in Japan, where there's a great shortage of nurses. And they have, in some of their private hospitals, they have robotic nurses available in the rooms. And uh, some people say, well, that's shocking, of course, you need an empathetic human being. At one level, what I would say immediately is, if you can't afford or don't simply have uh, human beings, then the test is not, is this robot better than nurses? Is it, is it better than nothing at all? Exactly. And that's often the test with a lot of the technologies we're talking about, because what we identify in the professions is that the benefits of the professions are actually very unevenly distributed. And so often these systems may not outstrip in terms of performance and empathy a top-notch expert, but will be way better than what most people have just now, and that is almost no access whatsoever. And what would happen, just slip back to the example of the nurse in Japan or the robotic nurses, that there's some kind of wireless connection between the ropes of the patient and the machine, and it can detect whether or not there's some kind of agitation or pain or discomfort and, and make comforting noises, emit comforting music, keep the person company. And that, for many people, might sound bizarre, 
But again, the choice of having some kind of electronic care facility is against no care facility, I think that is not a choice. I think it's a, a very promising option where we, we lack the appropriate human resource. What fascinates me in the area of psychotherapy, for example, is that some people are now saying that they prefer interacting with an electronic psychotherapist, um, and not least because they don't mind burying their souls and disclosing their darkest secrets and worries to a machine rather than to a fellow human being, but also because these systems are so programmed that the responses they receive are actually, it's not that the machine is feeling empathy in the way a psychotherapist would, but they're sending out the signals and offering responses which give rise to the kinds of reactions we would want in our patients. Now, I really want to be very clear here. I'm not saying these systems are more empathetic than human beings. No. I am saying they're way better than nothing. And I'm also wanting to challenge the view that, well, the, the view that most people take, that all professional service needs to be delivered uh, through an empathetic advisor. I, I don't accept that as the case in all cases. An aspect of this, uh, Richard, uh, that you touch on as well as data-assistant decisions or using aggregation of information to help the human decision maker be more consistent. There's, of course, that remarkable Israeli research that shows that sentencing decisions by courts are deeply affected by the time of the day that the prisoner appears before the judge uh, and where the judge is at on their daily cycle. Can you say a little about how IT might transform by providing in a sense, a more consistent base for policy choices. It was parole decisions, which may come to the same uh, thing, but I think they are slightly different uh, in the Israeli situation. You know we're creating massive amounts of data in all our professions as a byproduct of our daily activity. It turns out that this data, in a sense, is just a, an invaluable body of past experience into which we can dip. And what's evolved over the past few years through a number of technologies variously called, they are different, but all things one will hear like machine learning and data science and, and data mining and so forth, but and clever algorithms, but basically ways of discerning patterns or regularities or correlations in the data that human beings might not notice themselves. And the most, I, I suppose, extreme examples, systems, for instance, that can predict the outcome of court decisions more accurately than human lawyers, based not on the law, but based on it's essentially a statistical prediction of yeah. the behavior of the courts. It might be based on the name of the judge. Uh, again, you say correctly, the time of day of the decision and so forth. Uh, but we're seeing more advanced systems in medicine as well, where the reported earlier in the year in the prestigious science journal Nature, it was a system that could diagnose malignant melanoma or detect melanoma from images more accurately than dermatologists. Now, this system knows nothing about histopathology or dermatology, but it's got 110,000 or so past cases where the image together with the results of the pathology are recorded. And through very, very crudely, this is an oversimplification, some kind of partial pattern matching, the system more accurately than a human being uh, can look at an image of a lesion and detect whether or not it's likely to be a melanoma. So it, it's not simply the use of data to identify irregularities or anomalies in the behavior of human beings as with the judges. It's actually using the data to undertake the work that would otherwise be undertaken by human beings. And this is why some people are saying that data science will trump medical science. And even in areas such as architecture, if you look at the design of the Hamburg Concert Hall, it was almost entirely designed by algorithm. And it's such a beautiful building, it's hard to imagine that there wasn't a human being directly involved. I'm aware that it was because it was drawing on uh, countless past designs held within very large amounts of data. And so we're getting these systems to use the data to derive 
essentially patterns from the data, and there's a whole very sophisticated technology involved in this, uh, to well, in a way, isn't it like what human beings do? Uh, well, experts often say they rely on their past experience. But what these systems have is many more instances of past experience. And they can also correct for predictable biases in human behavior. Uh, th- that is true, but people do worry about the biases that, that algorithms and data yes. can also incorporate. Yeah. In, indeed. Indeed. Now, I'd just like to invite you to speculate on some of the policy implications in many ways, you've described a world that would produce much better services for individuals, but leave an awful lot of professionals without necessarily much to do. Yes. I mean, at one level, there's a very big public policy debate about the future of, of work. Yes. Because what we're seeing, I think, on any view, is machines taking on more and more tasks that historically, both white collar and blue collar work, that historically we thought only could be undertaken by human beings. And so a lot of debate we're finding about does this mean the end of work? Is work uh, vital to the human condition? Uh, Is it not work that gives us meaning as well as income and so forth? So there's considerable debates to be had about the impact on our way of life. I think of our generation, we find it hard to imagine a life without work, but it's not inconceivable. It's just very much at odds with our our past experience of how you make a living and, and how you live a meaningful life. I think profound Policy questions arise from essentially the displacement of labor by machines because this essentially means that what is going on is that value and income, as it were, and productivity are attributable less to labor and more to capital. And the very interesting question that arises is who actually owns this capital? And we're seeing already today that so much of the intellectual capital, so much of the data, as well, and the processing and so forth, and the data storage is already owned by a very small number of major organizations, that this could, in the long run, have a very polarizing effect between those who own and can benefit from the capital and those who do not. And so the the redistribution of the value that's derived from the capital, or maybe even a reallocation of the capital, is an issue, a huge issue of political economy, probably political philosophy, as well as policymaking over the next uh, few decades. These are some urgent issues that need to be addressed quite quickly. Another one, not unrelated, is the moral limits of these systems we're developing as AI systems become more powerful, even if they are able to undertake certain kinds of tasks are there any activities that we would say we want to be beyond our machines? I don't know. You may share my intuition currently, at least, that I wouldn't want a machine to be able to decide whether or not to turn off a life support system and then actually flick the switch without human intervention. I don't think I'd really want a machine to pass a life sentence on another human being. We sense, I think most of us, that there are some moral limits, but these need to be debated publicly and thought through rationally. So it's been a huge pleasure today to talk with the co-author of The Future of the Professions, Professor Richard Suskin. Richard, thank you very much. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you. For those who are interested, for uh, I made a submission to the House of Lords Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence. We have one of those in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's online. Uh, it's, it's called Artificial Intelligence Challenges for Policymakers. And there's certainly enough to keep us going for a while if you're in the policy field. Excellent. And thank you for listening to The Policy Shop. Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. 
Policy Shop is licensed under Creative Commons. Copyright, University of Melbourne, 2017.